You're listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. This episode is with the National Autobahn Society on hummingbirds. Our family loves to have family meals together, but you know what? I'll be honest. I'm not always the best at planning those meals, and I found Blue Apron. It's a really great way to get meals right to my door with easy-to-follow step-by-step recipes, and it takes a lot of that guesswork and planning out of meal preparation. If you go to blueapron.com forward slash goadventuremom, you will get your first three meals for free. So check it out. Blueapron.com, Go Adventure Mom. Welcome to the Go Adventure Mom podcast, where having kids only adds to the adventure. Get outdoors, see the world, live a full life. Go Adventure Mom, for families who refuse to be indoorsy people. Now, let's go adventure with Kathy Dalton. Hello, this is Kathy Dalton. Today we are talking about one of my favorite things in the world, birds. We're going to learn about hummingbirds with Dr. John Roden. He's the Director of Community Conservation at the National Audubon Society. Welcome, John. Thank you, Kathy. It's great to be here. So before we get into our bird nerdery, I would love to hear where your favorite place to go adventure is. Well, so I live in Los Angeles, which is a bit of an adventure itself sometimes. I have a very close place that I love to go adventuring, which is just up in the Santa Monica Mountains. I think that one of the great things about living in LA is that we do have some really fantastic natural areas that are close by. And just up in the mountains, you know, there's, for the non-bird nerds, there's, you know, things like mountain lions are still found up there. We do have some pretty wild uh, natural areas up there, but also great birding, great hiking, a lot of elevational differences, and so accessible to the city, which is really fantastic. A little farther afield is, for me, Joshua Tree National Park, which is just one of my favorite places. And I've traveled a lot, but it's one of my favorite places on the planet. It's so beautiful. Uh, you know, again, it's it's fairly accessible to LA. Great camping there, great hiking, great climbing, all of that. And I get there pretty much every season, although we're getting into that really hot temperatures and it's a little less welcoming, but um, the rest of the year, cold, warm, hot, it's a fantastic place. I love going there. Another one I recommend close by is um, Channel Islands National Park, which is the least visited national park to my understanding. So it's Santa Cruz Island, Santa Rosa Island, Anacapa. It's off the coast of Ventura. And Again, amazing camping out there. We go camping every fall if we can get out there. So definitely that should be on your bucket list. That's great. So I love birds. I am a self-proclaimed bird nerd. Have probably for, the, I don't know, the last 12, 13 years really gotten into it. Had a, a friend that I worked with. I worked at a, a health science company and this gal, Amy Heron, she took us out with her dad who he, he was an ornithologist and, and has had this great background and had a scope. And, and that's really when that love for bringing birds to our yard and, and getting to know our local birds really started. And it's been so neat to see our own kids have this love for the birds and, and they can name, you know, we've, we've been able to get yellow finches and we've, or the gold finches and the, uh, the kids, you know, every morning we're eating breakfast and they're looking at the bird feeder and our little three-year-old will say, look, she's, she's waving her wing at me. <laughs> That's great. So tell us about your background, John, and tell us how you kind of have the same shared passion. Tell us how you got involved with the National Audubon Society. 
Sure. So I've had a lifelong love of animals. It wasn't that energy and that love wasn't necessarily always focused on birds. I um, was always dragging my family out into natural areas to look at wildlife and always dragging wildlife home. I was one of those kids. It wasn't until I really got to graduate school that I honed in on birds and the long story short is that the sort of questions I was interested in, birds lent themselves to studying the most. And I did my graduate work in Australia studying a group of parrots oh, for my dissertation. Cool. So I actually have a PhD in zoology focused on that, on the behavior of parrots, and took that. And that really just cemented that that birds were you know, the best thing for for me. I was doing a lot of filming of the birds uh, at their nest sites. That was the basis of my research. And when they weren't at their nest sites, I would just sit back and watch all the other birds. And there's such an incredible diversity of birds in Australia that it was, it was just so fantastic. And I think that that diversity of birds and that accessibility of them is something that you've already pointed out, right? It's, it's your kids have that opportunity and we all do as we're sitting like at our breakfast table to see these things that just come into our lives so regularly and we don't have that real access to to wildlife with other sorts of wildlife with reptiles or mammals or anything it's really that immediacy i think which which a lot of us can connect to absolutely and what we've noticed in our own life is that it it adds this layer to all of the things that we love to do to hiking to camping that you know, you start to study the birds and you start to be more aware of your surroundings and it just creates this real, I think, depth and uh, just just a lot of quality, I think, to any experience when you're able to recognize, I was thinking hummingbirds, because we're going to talk a little bit about hummingbirds, but, you know, the difference between a rufous hummingbird and a different kind of hummingbird, I think, is kind of neat. So how did you get involved with the Audubon Society? Right. So I do have this academic background in birds. And I was actually, after my graduate work in Australia, I was living in New Zealand doing some work there. And I moved back to the States because I am American and I have family here. And I had a sort of a family a medical need. And I landed back on the shores in New York and started doing some work with the local chapter of the Audubon Society in New York City. And I think that the Audubon Society brings together a couple of passions for me, obviously birds, but also connecting people with birds. I really think that that's an important thing and a valuable thing. And so my role there was director of citizen science and outreach at the chapter. And so I involved New Yorkers in our scientific research, collecting data out in Jamaica Bay and other natural areas in the city to help us understand the habitat needs and uses that birds were pursuing in the city. I worked there for about four years before I transitioned over to the national program, which was based in New York City as well. And so my title now is Director of Community Conservation, as you said. And so I have the real joy of working with, we have over 460 chapters across the country. We have 43 nature centers. And across that vast network, I work to help them connect with their local communities to bring the joy of birds more broadly, and also to work in the conservation of birds. You know, they sort of fit hand in hand, how we bring people to birds, and also we create more opportunities for conservation in those communities for birds. And that's, I mean, that's got to be a huge <laughs> task 
to do. But I, I mean, I, I'm a member of the National Audubon Society and, Thank and you. love being a part of it. You know, just a wealth of information as well as, I mean, great resources. I mean, beautiful books that are up to date and have very accurate information that are based on, on just some really great research. Love that. Love that we can join the Audubon Society and connect with their local chapters and be a part of these things that are happening in your own community. Absolutely. Yes. And that's, you know, I think that that's one of the um, real strengths of our organization is that we do have these local chapters that are very connected to the conservation in that community, right? And so you've mentioned that there's opportunities for people to engage in. And so when I was at the chapter in New York City, I, I coordinated the citizen science programs, like I said, and those exist across the country. There's a program called the Christmas Bird Count, which is one of, if not the oldest, citizen science programs in the country, which started in 1900. And what that does is around Christmas every year, uh, folks go out and they count the birds that they see in specific areas. And initially, the impetus for that was to sort of change the model. In the 19th century, there were these things called side hunts that people would do on Christmas Day where people would go out and shoot as many birds as they could. And it was just a, a sporting thing. It wasn't for food or anything. And there was a, um, a curator at the Natural History Museum in New York called Frank Chapman who wanted to sort of change that model. And so he said, well, instead of shooting birds, we should count them. And so starting in 1900, he gathered a group of people in Central Park in New York City and they went out and counted the birds. And so now, so it wasn't thought of as a scientific or a, a way to engage people in collecting scientific data, but we have this fantastic data set now of 117 years where we can look at population and numbers of birds across the country and we can see it's really illuminated things like shifting populations over time, how species are actually responding to climate change. And so it's a really valuable data set and it's really important to engage people in this. And we have a variety of other citizen science programs that don't have the longevity of Christmas bird count yet, but um, as we engage people you know, into the future, we can continue to gather that important information. One, one thing that I see a lot in the springtime is little baby birds that fall out of their nest. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about what we should do if we do find a baby bird that is not in its nest? Because I think there's sure. a lot of like um, myth around that. There sure is. And in fact, just a couple of days ago, I got a call from my sister-in-law saying, I found a baby bird. You know, what do I do? Will the parents smell it if, smell me if I put it back in? I think there's these sort of conceptions about that. So there's a couple things to think about. One is that birds that are starting to fledge or leave the nest can look sort of helpless and like baby birds. If a bird is, is has fully feathered and is actually able to move around, its eyes are open, it's active... That bird may be just in the process of leaving the nest, and so you actually don't need to do a lot for that particular bird. You just need to keep it safe. So if it, if the nest happens to be near a, near an active sidewalk or you know a road or something like that, it's it's useful to get the bird away from a, an area that could be dangerous. But you can leave it out. Its parents will be around, and and that's part of the process of actually getting becoming independent is is sort of navigating that shift from. You know, I think 
hopefully parents can recognize that, navigating the shift from being cared for full-time to actually taking care of yourself. If you notice that the chick isn't fully feathered, if it's completely naked, if its eyes are closed, it's just, it's fallen out of its nest. And the best thing to do is to locate that nest if you can and just put that bird back in as quickly as you can. Because they don't have a a great ability to maintain body temperature because they're not fully feathered and so they can get chilled relatively quickly. So putting it back in the nest, birds generally, songbirds in particular, don't have a great sense of smell. That's not their primary sensory modality. And so that sort of conception that they'll smell humans and and will reject the chick is not true. Just go ahead and get it back in the nest and um, the parents will take it from there. If the nest has you know, is compromised or, or has, you know, shifted. And so that's why the baby has fallen out. If you can actually uh, rearrange it so that it's actually more stable, they're pretty good. And, they, and their parent birds are very focused on the nest. And so they're not going to uh, reject it just because it shifted a little or moved slightly. In fact, I had a friend recently who called me and she had a, a nest, a nest had fallen out of a, a bush that was being cut down. They didn't realize there had been a nest in it. And what she did was just take that nest and put it right on a trash can that was next to where the bush had been. And the parents came and just took over. And she actually, she was very proud of herself. She fledged three robins from that nest by helping them just, you know, and putting it up on that trash can. Wow. That's, that's a great story. One thing that we love to watch and, and to have come to our backyard are hummingbirds. Pollinators certainly, and hummingbirds are important pollinators, um, and we want to celebrate and acknowledge how important all of that group of organisms are, whether they be related or not. So bees and butterflies and hummingbirds are, are incredibly important just for ecosystem function so that uh, that the whole system works, but also they're incredibly important for agriculture as well. A lot of the crops that grow across the country and across the world are pollinated naturally by insects and birds, and so it's really important to acknowledge that. Hummingbirds, there's a variety of environmental pressures that are operating that are causing pollinators to have challenges. And certainly for Audubon's perspective, climate change is a, is a very large one that is affecting bird species across the country. But if we're talking about hummingbirds, there's a number of hummingbird species that have challenges because of climate change. And, and you can imagine for organisms that are uh, rely on flowers for nectar, if you have shifts in timing of flowering. You know, we were talking before this about how the temperatures in Utah have been all over the place. And as we get warming temperatures, particularly for migratory species and hummingbirds that we see um, out west, as well as the ruby throat back east, are migratory, right? And so when they return from their wintering grounds, there can be mismatches between when they return and the flowering that, of the flowers that are important to them and that nectar. And so that can be a real challenge for species that are very reliant on those sorts of resources. So certainly hummingbirds fall into that sort of category. John is going to share what we can do in our own backyards to help save hummingbirds when we return. My husband and I just got back from a trip to Cancun, Mexico, and we were able to take our monster digital HD 360 camera with us. Basically, it's like two fisheye lenses, kind of like a a small compact camera that is able to film all around where you are. It is so awesome. We had such a blast filming the beach and the ocean and the waves and just a, a really fun way to give a 360 view of what we were seeing and what we were doing. We love the Monster 360 camera 
and definitely would recommend it for anybody that wants to try and shoot something a little bit different. It can do still photos and it can do videos. Go to monsterdigital.com for more information. We are back on the Go Adventure Mom podcast. Our guest today is Dr. John Roden. He is the Director of Community Conservation at the National Audubon Society. We're talking about hummingbirds, and John is going to share what we can do to help save hummingbirds. We have a program at Audubon called Plants for Birds, which promotes the use of native plants for supporting bird populations. And there's a number of of reasons that native plants are better for birds. The plants have evolved with the insects that they um, coexist with. And interestingly, 96% of terrestrial bird species feed insects to their young, regardless of what they eat as adults. And so hummingbirds are in that group, right? And the reason for that is because insects, and particularly caterpillars, things like that, are really fantastic sources of protein and fat. And that's a really important thing to feed growing organisms. Families and mothers can relate to that, that we need to ensure that our offspring are getting the proper things to grow and to develop. And so because of that, that's why independent of what the bird may eat as an adult, they are searching for those sorts of resources for their um, babies. So if you have native plants that have co-evolved with these insects, those native plants are better sources and better hosts for those insect species. And there's been some really great research done on this by an entomologist, a guy who studies insects at the University of Delaware named Doug Tallamy. And through that research, he's identified that native oak species host over 550 species of moths and butterflies. And so those they're just these great storehouses of insects that can feed birds and can help feed baby birds. And he's also, through that research, identified that non-native species, so there's a very common species of tree called the ginkgo, which is native to Eastern Asia. It's used very often in cities. It grows really well in poor soil and it copes with air pollution quite well. That species of tree only hosts five species of caterpillars. And so you can see that if you have um, a forest of ginkgos that you're going to have, it's, it's like a bare refrigerator versus, you know, these native species that have just a lot of those insects. And so that's the background or, the, or one of the main pieces of information around why we're promoting the use of native plants. Beyond the resources that those plants provide directly, so if we're talking about hummingbirds, that nectar that those native plants are providing is important, but they are feeding those little insects to their offspring in the nest. And so it's important that they have the whole suite of the resources that they need, both directly and for the ones that they're going to feed their chicks. I love that you're you're kind of educating us on the, the big picture, because I think... I mean, we, we always have, you know, little nectar feeders and we think, oh, good, we're helping the hummingbirds. And, and I think it sounds like it's good, but it's yep. even better if we can be planting native plants that are going to not only attract the hummingbirds and, and give them some of that nectar, but that we also have those bugs that are part of that whole system. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And certainly nectar feeders are, I, I encourage people to have those, but if you can do plantings as well, that's great. And I want to make, you know, insects, it can be sort of a challenge to, to encourage people to plant for insects because people say, wait, I, you know, I, 
do I really want to attract more insects? But these are insects that are actually really beneficial for the birds. So we're not suggesting that you attract mosquitoes, those sorts of things, although they will, they will snip those up and, and feed those to their offspring. But it's these other beneficial insects that are really um, what we're focused on. So the Plants for Birds program, we have a database where if you enter your zip code, it will tell you what plants are native to your local area and what birds they'll support, as well as what your local Audubon is so that you can get additional support if you need. And we also include local nurseries that sell native plants because we want to help people as much as possible to set them up for success. And in the database, you can filter for different types of birds or you can, if you're only interested in particular types of plants, you can do that. So if you're interested in hummingbirds, you can select hummingbirds from a drop-down filter. It will tell you what plants um, are native to your area that will support hummingbirds uh, where you might be able to purchase them and what your local Audubon is. And so if you have questions moving forward, you can connect with them and they'll help you with that process. So getting back to your question, right, which is what can you do in your backyard? If you go to, to our database and you understand what plants are best for hummingbirds in your local area, having those in your yard is a great thing. It will help, you know, over time to build up those resources that are available to the hummingbirds, which is a really great way to support them. You'll bring more hummingbirds to your yard, which is, of course, I think you and I can agree is a great thing to be able to see. And so that's that's certainly one way. And and one thing that I want to, to emphasize as well is that you don't, I keep saying yard, you don't necessarily need a yard, right? Um, it, there's there's small if you have a plant you know a place that you can put a container with a, a plant that's friendly to hummingbirds that's great too you know we want to create larger patches of habitat but data are increasingly showing that even small patches of habitat or even small locations that have these sorts of resources the birds will find them and so I want everyone everywhere to feel that they can participate even if they don't happen to have a yard well and also having a water source right absolutely that will help to attract birds and we and we had a sprinkler head that broke back when we had a dog and we actually intentionally left it broken because it created this great little just enough of a little pool of water on the very edge of our lawn that the birds can kind of splash around and you know get a little drink and I mean it's not a lot of water but it's just enough that it's like a little drip system. Absolutely. You know, water, that, that's a great thing. I mean, there's, there's certainly other things that you can do when we think about resources that we provide for birds. And so water is, is critical. So having a small water source is important. You can leave, perches are actually really important to birds. So if you actually leave, you know, small sticks or small bare branches around, that's actually really helpful for them to be able to, to perch on. And then one thing that's really important as well from sort of an ecosystem health perspective as well is not using pesticides, right? Because I, I think that we can all understand how those things can can get into the system and can have negative consequences. And one of the fantastic things about native plants is that they require less pesticides, right? Because they're actually evolved to cope with the insects, as I've talked about already, with the insects that live here. And so they don't necessarily sustain that insect damage, or if they do, it's fine. So using less pesticides not only helps because then you have a more healthy ecosystem, you have a more healthy yard, and that can help the birds as well. I love the information you're sharing, and I, I'm going to take my kids to our local 
whatever you call it, where we buy flowers, <laughs> milk your nursery, milk creek gardens, our nursery. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think it'd be really fun to kind of do like a day of, you know, let's focus on hummingbirds. Let's go buy, you guys can pick out a couple plants. Let's plant them. And then let's, you know, get some sticks around some of these areas and they can feel like they're part of that process. And then when we do have the hummingbirds come, I think that I think that could be really fun for them to feel like they're a part of making a difference in our our own little family and our own little neighborhood. Absolutely. And so I moved to LA about two and a half years ago. The house had rose bushes and grass. And in Los Angeles, you know, we've sort of shifted away from that. So I removed all that stuff and I planted native sages and native lavenders. And it's amazing. I, you know, I look out my office window and I see hummingbirds pretty regularly. And it just, you know, it's, it's sort of that field of dreams thing, you know, if you provide it, they will come. So that's a great thing for you to do with your kids for sure. And there's also an app that um, the Audubon has that helps to provide a lot of really great information for scientists. And that's the, is it the Hummingbirds at Home? Absolutely, yeah. So if you are interested in hummingbirds, we do have a program called Hummingbirds at Home. It's another one of our citizen science programs. And it is optimized for mobile use. So you can sign on, you can identify a a patch that you have and actually collect data on the hummingbirds. You see what plants or other nectar sources, if you have a feeder, that they're going to. And it really helps us understand or will help us understand over time how hummingbirds are using these resources, how the population are coping with changing, you know, situation and everything. So yes, I encourage people, if you like hummingbirds, certainly uh, hummingbirds at home is something that you can participate in that will help us understand and help protect them. The Audubon is, they have such a great vision for helping to protect wildlife, but as a nonprofit, they need all the support and help that we can give them. So definitely go to Audubon.org, sign up, become a member, you know, donate whatever you can because it, it really does make a difference. Absolutely. We've been in existence for over 110 years now. We're one of the oldest um, environmental organizations in the country and with a full focus on birds and making communities better for birds because, as we understand, it makes communities better for people. So we, um, we welcome your support however and wherever and whatever you can do. Thank you so much, John, for being on the Go Adventure Mom podcast today. We really appreciate you sharing and and helping us get a bigger vision of what we can do in our day-to-day life to make a difference. Absolutely. Totally my pleasure. And uh, if there's anything that I can do to help, just let me know. Thanks so much for joining us on today's podcast. We hope that this added value to your day and that you enjoyed it. A big shout out to Jess Weaver for leaving a review in iTunes. Thanks so much, Jess. Let us know what you think. Give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. You can get a shout out too. We will see you next week with another great episode. Make it a great week, you guys. Thanks for listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. For more family adventure, visit GoAdventureMom.com. Plus, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends.